play hide-and-go-seek, there's a, a place that you identify as base, right? And so the, there's one person that stands by the base, and they count while everyone else hides. And usually it goes, you know, anywhere from 25 to 50, maybe 100, who knows? And so the person counts out loud to make sure they don't cheat while they're counting. And so as they count, they usually say 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and what do they say? Ready or not, here I come, right? And you better be ready. And depends on the count sometimes. It may happen when they're ready to come get you when you are not ready. Now, one of these days, the Bible says in the book of Thessalonians, the apostle Paul, he says that the trump of God will blow. It's going to be something a little bit louder than that. Thank you, Brandon. And when it blows, the Bible says that the dead in Christ will rise and those of us who remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds and we will be forever with the Lord. Jesus talks about two people doing different things and one is going to be left and the other is going to be removed. That day actually is going to happen. When it will happen, we are not told. We are simply told that it will happen. And it will happen in a moment in when most of us, I'm convinced, are not ready for it to happen. For many, it says in the Bible, he will come like a thief in the night. And they will be caught unprepared and unready for the return of Christ. It's important for the disciples to understand at this juncture in the gospel of Acts chapter 1, where he... He wants them as disciples to see him leaving to understand that as he left, he will also return. And there are two special witnesses that stand alongside the disciples as they watch Jesus ascend who are going to remind them what Jesus has spoken to them various times in the teaching prior to the resurrection. I think in the 40 days of the resurrection, when he taught the disciples during those 40 days, about one of these days he's going to return and establish the kingdom of God. And he's sending them out to make things ready for his return. And what these two witnesses are going to encourage the disciples to be is to be reliable and to be ready for the return of Christ. We as a church are to be ready for the return of Christ. We don't know when, and in the meantime, we need to be reliable. And so as we take a look at this text, there are four things that I want us to identify that would help us be reliable when the return of Christ takes place. For we do not know when it will be. It could be before we end this service today. It could be as you're on your way to lunch somewhere in a little bit. It could be as you lay your head down on your pillow tonight. It could be as you get up. Some of you are off Monday. Most of us are not. As you get up and get ready to go to work, wouldn't it be great? Never have to go to work again. To be all of a sudden caught up together with him in the clouds and forever to be with the Lord. Are you ready? For when he returns. Four things. Number one, in order for us to be reliable and to be ready, we need to wait confidently. There is a waiting 
that, that is a process and a part of the return of Christ. For Jesus told his disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. We are in waiting as well. And disciples, as they saw Jesus leave the earth, were also in a holding pattern. And they were also to wait for the return of Christ. And in Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 6, we see the text says that, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, Is it not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority? I've already said that in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus has spent 40 days with his disciples, and I'm convinced during those 40 days, it reminds us that Jesus not only taught them about the coming of the Holy Spirit, but he also identified and talked about the coming of the kingdom of God. And so it's not unnatural for the disciples then, in this last moment with Jesus, to wonder about when his return will happen. When will he set up his kingdom? And they're wanting to know, is it now? Is this the time? Is this the moment? I think they were ready for it. But the reality is that Jesus was saying to them, it's not time just yet. And there's a reason for that. But in the meantime, I want you to wait with confidence because I want you to take a look at the text. He says to us in the very last part of that sentence, is it not for you to know times or seasons, but notice the last part of the text, that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Don't run over that or skip that or read by that too quickly. The Father has fixed it by his own authority. Who is the person who has fixed the return of Christ? The Father is the one, the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords is looking to his heavenly Father and identifying that God has already, he is the one who identifies the time and the season in which Jesus is going to return. He is the one, he is the person who has already fixed that moment and that time. In other words, that word fixed means it's already in the books. It's already in the plan. And we see that this plan has been fixed. There is a moment in time already identified by the person of the Father that Jesus Christ is going to return. Now, you and I are not privileged to that calendar. There have been many many in the past who thought they knew when and where, and they prepared the people who followed them to get ready for it, but they were badly mistaken, weren't they? Because only the Father knows. But he has a fixed date. How many of you have a calendar right now? You have a calendar that you work off of, and you have dates that are already planned for this next week, right? And your plans can change. For whatever circumstance or situation, the people you're meeting with or things that are done, sometimes you have to shift things around. But I'm here to tell you that that God, the Father, the person of the Father, the, the number one part of the Godhead has already that day already on his calendar. No one sees it. No, no, no one knows when it's going to be. It is already predetermined, put on his calendar. This is the moment. This is the season. This is the time in which it will happen. It's fixed. But notice it's fixed how? By his own authority. God and his providence is the only one who has the right or the authority to fix that moment in time in which the trumpet of God will blow and the dead in Christ will rise and those of us who remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds. And the point that I want to make is simply this. He will return. I know that's very simplistic, but you can be confident with the fact that as we wait on Jesus Christ to return, that one of these days he will return. 
We don't hear much about his return these days in many of the churches, but I remember as a kid, I used to hear about it all the time when I sat as a child in in the church uh, pews. My dad preached on it, other evangelists and other ministers preached a lot about the return of Christ. We don't hear a lot about it today, and I'm not sure why. Maybe we got tired of waiting. Maybe we got tired of reminding people, he's coming again, get ready, be confident of that reality. And people say, you know, I've been hearing that for years and he hasn't come yet. But whatever reason we've stopped talking about it, I think we need to continue to remind ourselves that we can be confident that one of these days, at any moment, the trump of God is going to blow and the dead in Christ will rise and those of us who remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds and we will be forever with the Lord. Be confident of the fact that Jesus Christ is going to return. Notice Acts chapter 32, Acts, sorry, 2, verse 32. Here we have this interesting passage just after Pentecost. Simon Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, after the Spirit of God fell upon the people, he begins to preach this incredible first gospel message. I mean, it's the first message that is preached after the Holy Spirit fell upon them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And he is preaching and proclaiming the gospel message of Jesus Christ to those who have been drawn by the Spirit. There are thousands who are there. And he boldly stands up and begins to declare a witness. And in this message, he talks about in the initial point as to the reason why they are, seem to be babbling and talking in unknown languages. He said it's because of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then you take a look at the text and, and you see that, that he not only gives the reason, but he reveals that these are the last days. They're the last days that we have on earth. And he talks about the fact that the Holy Spirit who was promised in the Old Testament and Joel and Ezekiel has now been given and that judgment is coming. But then he, we see in the remainder of the third and final point, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus. And that Jesus has not only been exalted to this high and lofty position, but he has ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. And that's why I want to pick up in verse 32, chapter 2. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he was poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to our Lord, notice what he said, this is a passage out of, out of uh, Psalms 110, I believe, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus ascended to the Father and now sits where? The right hand of the Father. But did you notice the word until? That is a huge word, I think, in, this, in the context of this passage. It is here where Simon Peter, preaching the first gospel message to the first unbelievers who would hear it after the, the falling of the Holy Spirit, after Pentecost, he says that Jesus has now ascended. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father until I make your enemies your footstool. Until. There's an until. That means that Jesus Christ is going to return again, people. That's what he's saying to them. We are giving testimony. We are witnesses that this Jesus whom you crucified has now been raised from the dead. And now he's ascended and he is sitting at the right hand of the Father until there's a moment in which the enemy now is under our feet until the enemy has been defeated. And the question that you're asking and the question that I ask is when is Jesus going to return? We have a clue. 
And it comes from Jesus himself. Matthew 24, 14. Matthew 24, 14. Take your Bible and turn there real quick. You want to mark it. It's not on the screen. Sorry. Matthew 24, 14. Notice what Jesus himself says about his return. He gives us one small clue about when he will return. You want to know when he'll return? We don't know the time. We don't know the season. But we have a clue given by Jesus himself. Now, Jesus said, I don't know, no one knows except the Father. But notice Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Did you see this? And then the end will come. When will the end come? What is their mission? To take the gospel. To the ends of the earth. We saw that last week. And the end will come. I will return when the gospel is proclaimed to everyone to the ends of the earth. If you took my my study in Revelation here a couple of years back, not a commercial mic because it's over. He kept saying, you're you're giving a commercial for your discipleship university class, and everybody's going to your class instead of the other class. But anyway... I told them this, it's an interesting realization, and I'm, I want to say it today. When will Christ return? When we fulfill our responsibility, when we fulfill our assignment. What is our assignment? To take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And when we fulfill our assignment and we take the gospel to the ends of the earth, when every person in the earth, on the planet, has heard the gospel of Christ, Christ will return. I think what that means is there is that one person, that one person that God wants to hear the gospel. He wants that individual to hear the gospel. And the moment that one person hears the gospel, Jesus is going to return. Let me ask you something. Those of us who have heard and we put our faith and trust in the gospel and we believe that Jesus rose from the dead and he's our Savior and he one day will return, maybe that one person that needs to hear the gospel is someone you know in Wichita, Kansas. Because we often have a tendency to think and and to try to identify this one person that's not heard the gospel as someone living in Asia or or South Africa or, or somewhere far away. Maybe it's not somewhere far away. Maybe it's right here in our community, living in our neighborhood, maybe even sitting in church today. Because when that final and last person hears the gospel, Christ will return. Of that, you and I can be confident. And until then, our confidence pushes us, moves us, drives us, gives us the purpose that we need to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Why? Because when we do, we hurry up the return of Christ. And I don't know about you. Are you ready? I'm ready. So let's get the gospel out to everyone we know. And maybe that one person that that the Holy Spirit is waiting for you to tell and to share might be that final one and his return comes. So wait confidently. Number two, witness faithfully. In the meantime, while we're waiting on Christ to return, we should not only wait confidently, but we must witness faithfully. We've already really dissected Acts chapter 1 verse 8, but I just want to sort of give a flyover here very quickly. In the last several Sundays, we have dissected Acts 1-8 until, if, if we don't know what it says by now, 
uh, we need to go back and l- listen to the tapes. Now, there's a disclaimer at the end of the CDs online and the ones from the church, and, and you need to be very careful about it. It says, if you operate heavy machinery or drive a car while listening to this audio cassette tape, we are not responsible for the outcome. I just thought I'd let you know right up front. But anyway, notice in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What's the promise? The promise is they're going to receive power. They're in need of power. They have been given a mission that is impossible for them to fulfill or to accomplish in their own strength independently and apart from the Spirit of God. And that person that they're going to receive is none other than the person of the Holy Spirit. Then you look at the next little line. It says the purpose for which they're going to receive this power, this person called the Holy Spirit, is to be witnesses. That's why he has given us this Holy Spirit, is to be witnesses. It's not to jump a pew or to raise a hand or to walk on water. It's to be witnesses in a powerful way of the resurrected Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel that transforms lives. And notice the progression. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. As you go, you're to be my witnesses. And in the meantime, the point that I want to make here, very specific, is as we wait for the return of Christ, we must witness faithfully. That's why he saved us. That's why he called us. That's why he equipped us. That's why he empowered us, is to engage a lost world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be witnesses. Acts 2, 37. Let's go back to the sermon, the first message that Simon Peter preached after Pentecost, after being filled with the Holy Spirit. You see in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, let's just quickly kind of go over what happens, and we're going to look at the last two verses, verse 40 and 41. But in 37 through 40, there's something interesting that happens as he's proclaiming or preaching his message of the gospel of Jesus, the power of the resurrection of Jesus, the the exaltation and the ascension of Jesus, the elevation of Christ, this conviction falls upon those who hear his message. They're suddenly convicted of their sin, and they cry out, what must we do to be saved? Please tell us how we can be saved. They want to know. Talk about a great interruption to a message. They just start blaring out, what must we do to be saved? And he calls them to repentance and to baptism. And then he says, if you will repent and be baptized, you can know and experience the complete forgiveness through the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And because this Holy Spirit and this salvation has been intended for you and for your generation. And then he cries out to them in response to their cry, what must we do? He gives the first invitation after the first message. May I say that there should never be a message given where the gospel is presented where there isn't an invitation to respond to the message. There's a travesty in many churches today. If and when they do share the gospel, they just send people out to make a decision. I think any time you share the gospel, have an opportunity to witness, to invite them and encourage them to place their faith and trust in Jesus. And that's what he does. And it says in verse 40, and with many other words he bore witness. Don't miss that. And with many other words he bore witness. We don't have his whole sermon here. How long do you think this sermon was? Longer than one of mine? More than likely. But keep in mind he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So he preached longer than I was. I'm just partially filled. But anyway, it's supposed to be a joke. But anyway, and with many other words he bore witness. And he continued to exhort them, 
Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Is that a word we need for today? So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about how many? 3,000 people. I don't know about you, but in order to have 3,000 people respond to the plea to place their faith and trust in Christ, you've got to have more than 3,000 there. Maybe there was 3,001 people there, and only one didn't respond. Maybe all 3,000 who were there responded. We don't really know exactly the count of how many were there, but we know that 3,000 people responded to God. Why? Because he was a faithful witness. And had he not been a faithful witness, these 3,000 souls would not have had an opportunity to receive the gospel and place their faith and trust in Christ. Until he returns, we must not only wait confidently for that return gives us an assurance that one day he will return. We must witness faithfully. Thirdly, we must walk dependently upon the Spirit of God, not in our own strength or our own ability. There is a dependence by which we must walk because he didn't ask us to do what we have been called to do in and of ourselves independently and apart from him now keep in mind the disciples had Jesus with them until this moment wouldn't you have liked to have been part of this have Jesus side by side and sit and eat and talk and verse and pray and fellowship and even cut some jokes and, and play some ridiculous games. I mean, they, they had a great time with Christ. I think he was a, a wonderful person to be around. But he's leaving. He's been warning them the whole time, we're leaving, I'm leaving. But I'm not going to leave you without someone that's going to help you, that's going to come alongside you, that's going to live in you, that's going to dwell with you and give you the power. And we saw it already in Acts 8, but let's look at verse 9 in Acts 1. Let's look at what happens here next verse 9 and when he had said these things you find that odd that, that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to say this and when he had said these things I mean it's a natural conclusion but he's kind of trying to link what has been said to what is about to happen I think because he's helping us understand that for the first time the disciples make an, uh, an interesting discovery and discovery is simply this that Jesus is no longer going to be with us He's done. This is their final conversation with Christ. They're not going to see him again. This is it. They won't hear him speak. They won't hear him teach. They won't hear him correct them and help them and lead them and guide them. This is their final moment with the physical presence of Jesus. And he's going to leave. And I think they suddenly become aware of that reality. You ever said goodbye to someone you really love and you knew you would never see them again? My father-in-law was one of those, Patty's dad, in uh, San Augustine, Texas. I have a picture of him that I've placed on, on Facebook a time, uh, at least once, maybe twice, where he's, he's giving me this right here. And I knew when I took that picture of him as he's waving, I would never see him again. Because of cancer, I knew he would die soon, and he did. If you know what that is like, put yourself in the shoes of these disciples, or in their sandals, so to speak. And think about what they must have felt when they finally realized this is it. No more. He won't speak to us again. We won't physically see him or touch him. And when they had, he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Notice the departure. They're looking at him, obviously. They're trying to absorb everything they can this last one time. 
And they see him all of a sudden. It's a passive tense verb. He is lifted up. Not Jesus lifting himself up, but Jesus is being lifted up by a power outside of himself. More than likely the power of God, maybe through the Holy Spirit, being lifted up. And as he's being lifted up, a cloud begins to form around him, which is symbolic of the Shekinah glory, the presence of God in the Old Testament. And he he ascends into heaven. And they stand there and go, Can you imagine the disappointment, the loss, the heartache, pain, the loneliness? They thought they had lost him once. When he died, he was buried, but he rose. And he he showed up while they were in the upper room. Out of nowhere, he came in and he left. And he kept doing this for 40 days, showing up and... and This time, he didn't sh in and sh out. They saw him literally just be lifted up. And physically, he just disappeared out of sight. And while they were gazing into the heaven as he went, notice the delay. It helps us understand that there's a short delay here. How long was the delay? We're not told. There's a delay. More than likely, Jesus has disappeared to the point you can't see him anymore, and they're still looking, and they're still gazing, and they're still longing, and they're still lonely, and they're still waiting and wanting him to return. And there's this, there's this sense of loss, and, and there's a sense of what do we do now, and, and, and all of that. I'm here on my own now. We've been given this great commission, and, and, and they're, they're going through all that. We don't really know what they thought, but can, can you just imagine? And all of a sudden, they're there, and there's a delay, and it must have been so long because God had to intervene in the delay. Remember when they were uh, with Jesus and they wanted in the mountain of transfiguration what they wanted to do? They wanted to build some tabernacles, didn't they? No, maybe there was some of that. Let's just camp out here and wait for him to come back. I don't know. But while they were gazing, it said, into the heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white clothes. These are supernatural beings. Maybe even the two men that were at the tomb when he rose from the dead. These two supernatural beings. We don't know. They're not identified as the same, but there were two supernatural beings at the tomb. Remember? These two supernatural beings in white robes speak. Imagine that. Supernatural beings speaking. Shouldn't surprise us. We know that satanic supernatural beings speak. Why should not? God's supernatural beings speak and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Why are you standing there? Now, that's, that's, a, that's a valid question, isn't it? They're, they are consoling them. We, we get it. We understand why you're standing here. You're sen- sensing this loss and this loneliness, wanting Jesus to return. We, we understand all of that. But, but let me give you now some, some corrective behavior. You need to realize, men of Galilee, you're not supposed to be standing here. But did you notice something interesting here? He calls them men of Galilee. Why men of Galilee? Well, I go back to the time in which some of the disciples who were there, if not all of them, were what? Men from Galilee. You go back to the two sets of brothers. They were fishing, and he calls them. 
Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they leave everything and they follow Jesus. They, the, these disciples were men from Galilee. Galilee was their headquarters where they spent a lot, and if not most, of their time with Jesus. They were identified. If you remember when, when Peter was around the, the fire and, and he said, aren't you a Galilean? You can tell by his accent. I can tell you're from Oklahoma by your accent. Or Texas. And so he's rem- they're being reminded by these two supernatural beings of where they came from, of their identity. I want you to go back in your minds and your hearts and remember back when you were called by Jesus to follow him and you left everything to follow him and you walked with him and he taught you and you you saw incredible things through this incredible three-year experience. Then you saw him die. You saw him being raised from the dead. You've had 40 days with him. But you are still men from Galilee. I think the angels here are reminding the disciples of their humanity. You're still men. You've been assigned an imp- a mission impossible. And, and you've been assigned to a mission, and you are to go and fulfill this mission. And you cannot walk the walk and live out the mission that God has given you without what Jesus has promised, that is, the gift, the presence, and the power of the Holy Spirit. You need an outside resource that will help you. Jesus had spoken about that in John 14, 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. He's a helper. He's there to help us. Notice John 15, 26, but when the helper comes, Jesus said, whom I send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He's a helper. Our next and final passage, John 16, 5 says, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage, he says to them. It is to your advantage that I go away. I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The two supernatural beings, the angels, are saying, hey guys, remember the words of Jesus? The helper is going to be given to you, and you need a helper. You need an outside resource. And I think there's so many today who are defeated and dejected and discouraged in their faith is because they're trying to walk the walk and to witness in their own power and in their own strength, and they are not succeeding in what they know to be the mission and the purpose in which God has given to them. And we, like them, need to understand that we need to walk in this hostile world that we live in toward the gospel that we believe and we proclaim, not dependent upon ourselves, but upon the helper. One of the coolest things about being with Owen and last week is that Owen's two and he's walking and he, he talks some gibberish that's not really quite fully understandable. And, and you think as a grandparent, it's hard for you to understand, but when his own parents don't understand it, it kind of brings me a little bit of, of, makes me feel good because they don't, I said, what is he saying? They don't know. And so we're on the couch one day and, and while we're there and, and uh, 
he goes to the pantry and he opens the pantry and he's learned to know where the where the the nuts are and he likes almonds and he's saying some some word like almonds and he's trying to get it and he's grunting because he can't get it and finally he gets dad's attention he says owen do you want some almonds and he says something not understandable he said do you want daddy to help it's interesting, he doesn't say yes, he says no. But that's most of the words you hear when you're no, right? But no to him also means yes. And he recognizes and realizes that he can't have almonds without daddy's help. He can reach, he can grunt, he can try, he can want all he wants, but it never will happen until dad gets up and opens the jar and gives him the almonds. You can grunt, you can grind, you can try, you can cry, you can stop, you can work as hard as you want to work. But the assignment, the walk, and the life that God has called you on, you need a helper. And he's given us that helper. So we must not only wait confidently, witness faithfully, and walk uh, dependently, we must finally watch obediently. To watch obediently. I don't think the angels here, these supernatural beings, are, are, uh, are, are sort of talking down upon them because of what they're sensing and feeling and, and how they're watching up into the sky. Because there are, there are countless of passages in the, in the New Testament where we are told to watch. In a way. To watch for the signs and to, to watch the skies and to watch and to wait. But while we watch, we're not to stand here paralyzed, watching and waiting for him to return and, and, and just not do anything. We need to watch with obedience. And he says here, Luke does, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that these two supernatural beings then addressed the disciples and said, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I don't know about you. Did you find that kind of odd? This Jesus. They knew who Jesus was. What a, why are they reminding them this Jesus, this Jesus, this Messiah? They are reminding the disciples of who he is, what he had called them to do, and what they were supposed to be doing, who was taken up into heaven. He was taken up by the Father in heaven. You're not going to see him anymore in this life until he returns. There's a promise that says Jesus will return. How will he return? He will return just like he left. Matthew 16, 27 says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. I think that's kind of what is happening here. These two supernatural beings are saying to them, He has told you to go to Jerusalem to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit in which you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will reside within you so that you will be empowered to do the task and the assignment, the commission that he has given you. You need to be obedient to him. Walk in obedience. Because this Jesus who left will one day return. And there will be an accountability that you will stand before him and give an account of your life. How did you live your life? Did you fulfill the mission that I gave you? 
I mean, I, I mentioned it earlier when he called the disciples and said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They were called early on, understanding their assignment was to take the gospel of Christ and they were become fishers of men. If they were to camp out there and not move into the mission, the commission that God had given them through Jesus, they would not be fulfilling the purpose for which they were called. They are to walk in obedience to him. And there's so much necessity for that today. Because not only have we raised a church where most members are silent about their faith, we have raised a church today we call the New Testament church. Notice we, we call the New Testament church that's filled with disobedience. Not just in the call to proclaim the gospel, but the call to follow Jesus. Because we're living in an era today that what it means to follow Jesus is being defined so redefined so quickly that eventually I'm convinced that in the next couple of decades it will not resemble what Jesus said is a disciple and we need to watch because we know one day Jesus is going to return and when he does we're going to stand accountable to him believer and unbeliever alike. Oh, those of us who are believers are going to escape judgment. We're going to escape condemnation. Sure, we will not be sentenced to hell, but we will have to give an account of our lives to him. What did you do with what I entrusted to you? Did you use it for the purpose for which I gave it? Did, did, you, did you fulfill the purpose for which I called you? Did you follow me in obedience? You don't believe it? Take a look at Jesus' words in Mark 13, and we'll close with this text. Mark 13, verse 32. Jesus says, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or in the midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Are we asleep, church? What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray.